Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Uh, today, we have another podcast in which I am the guest rather than the host. Uh, this time, we are reposting an episode of Robert Amsterdam's Departures podcast. Uh, Amsterdam is a well-known international lawyer uh, who has worked on many cases, uh, often high-profile ones involving human rights uh, in emerging markets in particular, uh, but he's worked in, in a variety of different areas. Uh, and he's been interviewing a whole bunch of interesting people and somehow chose to uh, interview me as well. Uh, in this podcast, which was recorded a few weeks ago, we mainly talk about the mess with uh, President Trump ordering TikTok to be sold to an American company, which <laughs> didn't quite work out the way I think he planned. Uh, but we also talk more broadly about internet regulation, Section 230, uh, and also just the future of innovation as a whole and sort of where uh, we expect it to be coming from. Uh, it was a really fun conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. The world is increasingly technological. Welcome to Departures. I'm thrilled to have uh, with me Mike Masick of Tech Dirt. We have been uh, reading his blog for years, listening to his podcast, and after paying him a massively exorbitant sum, some <laughs> millions of dollars, I, he's agreed to come on the show. Mike, really good to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This should be fun. And I'll tell you, um, just for the record, I have paid more than the president of the United States. <laughs> I think we all have. <laughs> And and with that, um, talking about the grifter in chief, I want to talk to you. I think you're the best person to talk to about the ins and outs of the TikTok deal. Um, I'm deeply concerned as a lawyer working in um, challenging emerging markets that Donald Trump is laying a trap for American businesses, the likes of which it is almost incomprehensible to believe uh, the, the door he is opening for expropriation of so many American brands and companies. And uh, firstly, I wanted, I have a series of questions on TikTok. Number one, is it true that what got this started was that TikTok was used to book out the, uh, very unfortunate um, live uh, <laughs> that uh, the Donald only had 6,000 people attend in Tulsa when he told the world, I think it was the late Brad Parscale said that he had um, a million requests. Uh, is that what got all of this started? Um that's that's the the rumor. I don't know if that's really true. I think there were definitely some concerns that were were raised before that. Um but things certainly kicked into high gear after the uh, Tulsa rally and the story of sort of uh TikTok users trolling 
the president by by you know requesting a whole bunch of tickets that, that they then didn't use. Um, so I, I mean, who knows? You know what actually what actually made them make this move? Um, you know, it had been talked about somewhat before that. There were some some rumors or some conversations, and people had raised concerns. Um, so I don't know if that, you know, it, it makes for a convenient narrative and, and maybe that was what pushed it over the edge. Uh, but, you know, if, if it wasn't that, something else probably would have, would have brought this on at some point. Well, he's, he's intent on, on portraying a war with China. Yes. So the, the, the basis which the Trump administration uses for its, its trade wars is the national security narrative. Yes. So tell me as a tech specialist, what is the national security risk of TikTok? <laughs> uh, well, that depends on who you talk to. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the sort of joking narrative is that uh, China might know where our teenagers are dancing <laughs> uh, because that is of course sort of the main use of TikTok. Um, you know, at a more serious level, there are, there are some, some general concerns, right. About, you know, how the app works and sort of what data it does collect about its users uh, and whether or not the Chinese government has access to it. Um, but so far there's been no, well, two two points on that. One, there's been no evidence presented that 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 TikTok's app, you know, collects any more data than than pretty much any other uh, app. Which it might be too much, but then there are lots of apps that collect too much data. Um, and there's been no evidence that they're doing anything particularly nefarious with it. And at the same time, you know, with so many other apps out there, um, you know, they collect all this data, and then many of them. Uh, make that available for for people to purchase through various data brokers. Uh, in fact, I, I didn't see, I didn't read the details yet, but I think I saw just this morning that Google had kicked 17 apps out of its app store uh, for violating policies and collecting data that they weren't that they weren't supposed to collect. You know, this kind of thing happens all the time. So if there are concerns uh, about that data, you know. China and China getting access to it. China has lots of different ways to get access to it, such as walking up to one of the many uh, often American data broker firms and, you know, putting down a credit card and, and buying pretty much the very same data. So I'm, I'm not sure I see the sort of unique threat to national security that TikTok poses that all of the data collected by other apps and made available via data brokers uh, you know, has out there. And, and then we have this story that Oracle and Walmart are going to save America by <laughs> yes. buying an interest in TikTok. Oracle, a company that has been hacked more times than can be counted. Uh, and I, I gather Oracle uh, and Walmart were chosen because they're friends of the president. What is um, your opinion about that? Yeah, I mean, so if, if, I, I think there's some sort of weird backstory here, right? So, you know, there was this this rush to to, um, to put out these executive orders, which which blocked two apps actually. They blocked TikTok and then also WeChat, which is a very popular um, app in in China. It's sort of the Facebook of China. Um, and uh, they were done very quickly. And with the TikTok one, there were t actually two separate executive orders for TikTok. 
and and various pronouncements from uh, from from Trump, uh, from from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and um, also from the Commerce Department and Wilbur Ross, um, basically saying that in order to get around this the the planned block, that they had to sell uh, sell tick ByteDance, the the company, the Chinese company that owns TikTok, had to sell it to an American company, uh, and they had to do that by uh, you know mid September. Um, and the original plan that was that was made clear was that Microsoft was going to step in and, and buy TikTok, uh, and Microsoft is an American company. And then there were sort of a few other rumors of other companies that that wanted to to jump in. Um, and then an Oracle was mentioned, and people sort of laughed it off. And the assumption was that uh, almost certainly Oracle was just trying to drive up the price for Microsoft, um, and you know nobody sort of really believed it. Uh, and then the other rumor that came out was Walmart. Uh, and, and at least according to a report in the New York Times, um, you know, Walmart actually really did want to buy the whole of TikTok or, or at least a majority percentage of TikTok. And the, the White House said no, because if Walmart purchased TikTok, it would prove that the national security explanation didn't make any sense because Walmart is not exactly a, a, you know, a huge technology company. They do have some technology components, but it's not one that you would think would have experience in terms of protecting national security interests. Um, whereas, you know, a lot of the other large uh, technology firms do. So, you know, apparently through whatever back channels, the White House told Walmart, like, no, you can't buy the majority interest because that would that would prove the lie. Uh, that is the reason for for the executive order in the first place. Um, and then what seemed to happen was that Microsoft realized that it was the only realistic buyer uh, out there. And so it put an offer on the table to to purchase the whole thing, apparently. Uh, and you know, probably knowing that they didn't have any real competition, it wasn't the kind of offer that TikTok or ByteDance wanted. So they rejected it and that left only Oracle. Uh, and so, you know, one of the other stories that, that came out was that um, TikTok's investors sort of recognized that they had to find a company that the president did like. Uh, and so they actually went casting about and reached out to Oracle in the first place. Oracle, uh, you know, the the top executives there uh, have been longtime supporters of Trump. Um, you know, Larry Ellison, who is the founder, um, was was a, a very large Trump supporter. And Safra Katz, who's the CEO of Oracle, was on Trump's transition team and and you know, some sort of has some sort of advisory kind of role uh, with the Trump administration. Uh, Oracle itself has done, you know, since its founding in the 70s, has done a ton of business with uh, the U.S. government and the CIA and the NSA. And, and um, so they've always been very close to, to, to the government. Um, but, you know, so the, the original report was that Oracle had bought them. But then as you start to look at the details, Oracle didn't say that they, had, they were buying them. They said that they had come to an agreement to be the technology partner for, for TikTok. And, you know, as more and more details came out, it became clear that they were just, uh, you know, really a hosting partner. Uh, Oracle is, you know, one of many different, you know, cloud providers out there. Uh, you know, Amazon and Microsoft and Google are probably the most well-known that provide cloud services. Um, Oracle's there, but they're pretty far down the list. And so this sort of, you know, gave them a big name client 
earlier this year, they actually signed up Zoom as well. Uh, we're recording this on Zoom, so we are using Oracle infrastructure in the background. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it was not a sale. Uh, there was, you know, at, at, after, you know, some discussion, it, it, it came out that Oracle and Walmart together were effectively getting a, a 20% equity stake in TikTok and ByteDance uh, con- still controls the remaining 80%, still controls the algorithm that people talked about. Um, and so it wasn't a sale and it was really just a hosting deal with a little bit of equity thrown in. Uh, and I don't see how that would deal with any of the supposed national security concerns if the whole point was that, you know, this Chinese company owns 100% of it, now the Chinese company owns 80% of it. Well, let, let me ask you this, because I think this is something that, in a way, pervades a lot of my concerns about the the situation with technology today, which is that, you know, I kind of share your views about copyright. Mm-hmm. Which is that the the copyright office itself um, has has just lost the plot in terms <laughs> yes. of actually protecting uh, the public in terms of sharing important information, and in many ways the copyright office was was uh, captured by the industry under the Democrats. I mean, this is not all Trump. I mean, I. No. I I, I was involved in the Kim.com case, where was, which was a, a, a prosecution for hire by right. the Obama administration. But what seems to be happening is that this uh, regulatory capture, or, which I, I think we're dealing with, with copyright, seems to be expanding under Trump exponentially. Uh, <laughs> That, that we, we really have seen it, uh, you know, most obviously with the Department of Energy, but, but also now in technology where, um, you know, based on the political utility of a particular technology, um, the government is now moving against you uh, in, a, in a spectacular way, as we see with this 230 issue that's, that's come up and the safe harbor issues. And I, I know on TechDirt, I was reading uh, uh, your note about uh, Josh Hawley's speech. Um, <laughs> yes. So I'd like you to talk, talk to our listeners about this whole issue of regulatory capture and how it seems to be expanding in the area of technology. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, all of these things are connected in, in some way or another. Um, certainly the Copyright Office is a good place to start. In fact, uh, just now, you know, a week or two ago, the Copyright Office named its new, the new head of the Copyright Office, the Copyright Register, uh, as uh, Shira Perlmutter, who had been, um, for the last few years, she's been the copyright person at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Why the Patent and Trademark Office needs a copyright policy person is a whole other <laughs> discussion. Uh, but, you know, she's worked in the Copyright Office before and in the past has worked for industry. She was at IFPI, which is the, the uh, you know, sort of international branch of the, the RIAA, the recording industry. She worked at Time Warner. Um, and, and this is something that's, that's always been true. The, the Copyright Office for the last, you know, 50 years or whatever, has basically been an extension of the legacy copyright industry. Uh, And they've acted as if the entire purpose of copyright is to help one particular industry. 
um, which is not, as some will tell you, the actual people creating the works, but it is the uh, large companies that you know, have acted as the gatekeepers and control the copyrights of the people who actually create the works, whether it's, it's uh, movies or music or books or, or what have you. Um, and so, you know, they've built up this, this system that is designed to protect a particular industry um, and, and have exported that around the world, which is some of what the, the Kim.com situation is. There's a, there's a lot more and there are all sorts of, you know, sort of crazy treaties and agreements um, that have been used very much not in the public interest, but to, to protect certain industries. Um, and, and actually one clear example of this, and I'll, I'll get to, to the other points that you raised, is the DMCA itself which is sort of now the, the law that controls how copyright safe harbors work. Um, you know, the history there is actually really interesting to me that the Hollywood sort of tried to get the DMCA rules passed through Congress in the early nineties and failed uh, and they didn't work. And so some of the people in government who supported it and were working very closely with Hollywood said, okay, if we can't get Congress to do this, we're going to route around them. And they've admitted this like straight up, like there's no, this is not, you know, reading between the lines. They said they went to uh, WIPO, the, the World Intellectual Property Organization in Geneva and said, we need uh, a treaty. And they, they figured out this uh, um, uh, intellectual property treaty that if, effectively required a DMCA-like law, got that signed, and then went back to Congress and said, look, we have this treaty that requires you to pass this law that you chose not to pass two years ago. Um, and it was the same people. It was just like, you know, if we can't get Congress to do it, we're going to force Congress to do it a different way. And so everything was sort of, you know, gamed in a way uh, to, to get what they wanted rather than what was, what was actually in the public interest. Um, and we're, we're definitely seeing that you know, what was learned in the 90s and the early 2000s by the industries to use copyright law in this way is now, you know, ha has been expanded so that all of this stuff is, you know, who can have enough control over the political levers to support a particular industry or a particular viewpoint. Um, and so we're seeing that in, in a lot of different ways. Um, you mentioned the, the fight over 230 uh, and Josh Hawley, and that's just one example where suddenly um, everyone has sort of realized how important um, the internet is to different speech. And, and there are very strong arguments that one of the reasons why Trump was elected in the first place was because of his particular use of you know, Facebook and Twitter uh, and, and using them very effectively to get out his message. Now, there are all sorts of questions about how that was done and what the algorithms did and whether or not there was help from, from outside forces and, and who knows. But it, it, even if we assume that it was all you know, his, his uh, brilliant campaign strategy, um, you know, suddenly how the message gets out, who controls the algorithm, who controls how speech is found becomes very, very important. And so I think a lot of what has happened around the 230 debate is really an attempt by the government to control, you know, how that works, because with the recognition that if you control how that works, you can help your party, you can help get your message out in a way that is more, more impactful without letting the companies you know, uh, say, like, we're not going to allow disinformation, or we're not going to allow false information to flow in this way. Um, and so, you know, there, there have been, 
you know, I, I've lost track, but probably a dozen different bills that are attacking Section 230. Um, and and uh, we haven't even discussed what Section 230 is. I don't know. Do, do we need to do that? Please, or please, please do that. For there's many who are going to be scratching their heads. Yeah. So I should be clear on that. So Section 230 is is you know it's referred to as the 26 words that created the internet. Uh, the actual law is a little bit longer than that, but not much. Um, but the key part of it, which is Section C1, is just 26 words long and it's 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 a very very simple law and the concept is very simple and it basically just says that if you uh have a website um or if you you create a space on a website as a user uh and other people uh put speech there you're not responsible for other people's speech um and then at the same time it also has a section that basically says if you moderate that speech, you're not responsible for the content that you left up. You're not responsible for the moderation choices that you made. And this was in direct response to a court case that had ruled the other way. Uh, you know, the, the Prodigy was a, an early internet service and they, they presented themselves as being a family-friendly service. And part of that was that they moderated their forums and they took down content that they thought was not family-friendly. Uh, and they got sued um, by by a Wall Street firm, which incidentally was the Wall Street firm uh, that was portrayed in the Wolf of Wall Street uh, for doing all sorts of nefarious things. But somebody had posted on the Prodigy forum, stock forums, that that this firm was doing uh, nefarious things. And they sued Prodigy, not the person who posted it. And the judge said, effectively, because Prodigy says they moderate and because they took down some content, any content they didn't take down, they're now taking responsibility for, and therefore they have liability for that. Uh, and, and two members of Congress, Ron Wyden and Chris Cox, both decided one Republican, one Democrat, both decided like, that's not good. Uh, we, we need to, to not allow that to happen. And so they they crafted what became Section 230 as a law that says, you know, there is no liability uh, for, uh, you know, for internet service providers or web, any website uh, or user of a website for content that they did not create or the moderation choices that they made. And there, there is strong argument to believe that that is really why the internet started to flourish. This was passed in 1996, and it enabled all sorts of user-generated content, as we call it today. So Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all of those things can exist without fear of being shut down through you know, a million different lawsuits. Death by a thousand cuts is exactly what, what Chris Cox has said they were trying to avoid. Um, and so it is, it is an important law. And for some reason, both Republicans and Democrats in the last like two or three years have decided that it is also the reason why uh, stuff they don't like is on the internet. And therefore the way to deal with stuff they don't like is to change 230. Now that's wrong for a variety of different reasons. Um, the reason stuff that they don't like is on the internet, at least in the US, is because of the First Amendment. As long as that speech is, is legal, as most speech is, you know, there are a few very limited exceptions, um, then the First Amendment protects it. Uh, and the First Amendment also protects the, the moderation choices that, that companies make because they're editorial choices. So if you're able to make editorial choices, we don't want courtrooms stepping in and, and second guessing the editorial choices of, of any publication. Um, Trump, Trump is getting pissed now because yes. Trump and Facebook are, are labeling some of his bullshit tweets. Yes. And that's aggravating him. And that's motivating the Republicans now 
to start getting more actively involved in trying to re-regulate the internet. Can you go yes. into those initiatives? Yeah, sure. So, you know, what happened was, you know, Trump is not always known for being truthful. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, and, and the, the different social media properties have sort of struggled with that. And whereas, you know, it's one thing to say we will, you know, as a social media platform, we'll pull down false information. It's, it becomes a different question when you're talking about the president of the United States, because his false statements may actually be newsworthy uh, and taking them down creates, creates a, an interesting dilemma. And so after, you know, sort of, I think dealing with, with a lot of questions about and trying to figure out what to do, Twitter decided to just add a fact check or to limit the ability to spread certain, certain of Trump's tweets. And he really didn't like that. Um, and then, you know, put out a different executive order, you know, effectively trying to force the FCC to reinterpret Section 230 in a way that is completely at odds with how the law is written and how the courts have uh, uh, adjudicated it over, over 20 some odd years. Um, and, you know, it's really an attempt to force social media platforms to host his speech, whether or not it is truthful, whether or not it is misinformation uh, or, or what. Um, Again, like the First Amendment says, that's that's not really the way any of this should work. Um, but we're now in this process where uh, a somewhat captured FCC is trying to to deal with this, along with a very very captured NTIA, which is the um, it's supposed to be the part of the the executive branch that sort of you know comes up with cybersecurity standards and and other things. It's it's usually not a particularly political branch of the executive branch, uh, and yet here it's it's been handed to someone who has a long time uh, hatred of Section two hundred and thirty, and he's sort of trying to use his role to to reinterpret or have the executive branch reinterpret Section two hundred and thirty, which is also not not how how any of this works um but if nobody stops them then they can kind of do do what they want and it seems like you know they're they're trying to reshape the internet so that it allows them to to uh, post whatever they want promote whatever they want whether or not it is factual whether or not it's truthful um and i i find it particularly um not humorous but you know this is the the uh, the party of of folks who have long said that you know the the answer to bad speech is more speech that you know let let us compete in the marketplace of ideas and yet you know that's exactly what Twitter was doing you know when Twitter appended a fact check to Trump's tweets about mail in ballots that was more speech. Uh, it, it, they didn't pull down his content. They weren't censoring his content, no matter what he says. They simply added more speech to it. So if you really believe that, um, you know, the, in this marketplace of ideas concept, then they should have been celebrating that. And he could respond to the fact check and, and, and disagree with it as, as he did. But, you know, to then say that, that these companies have to host your speech and cannot fact check it, um, you know, that kind of gives away the game. It shows that they're not really about protecting free speech. They're not really about supporting more speech. They just want to be able to say whatever they want and not have anyone attack it or not have anyone push back on it. So here's a, here's a different question. You're in the tech field. I am seeing many countries, particularly China, state mm -hmm. they are going to be in many ways uh, technology independent 
ahead of the United States. Xi Jinping 2025, uh, China's going to lead the world in artificial intelligence. China, China's got a host of programs, their Thousand Talents program, that, that are bringing people to China to try to create numerous Silicon Valleys. At the same time, the United States is restricting immigration. The United States is, is failing to uh, engage in a coherent uh, technology growth policy. Where do you see us from, a, from the US standpoint? Where are we in 10 years relative to the Chinese? Uh, yeah, that's a big question. Uh, it's going to depend a lot uh, on what happens. You know, probably what happens in November will have an impact on this. Uh, you know, what happens over the next few years is going to have a huge impact. Um, you know, it's interesting, um, you know, for, for a long time. So a couple different things on that. Um, one, I think, I, I do think it is harder than most people realize to create a sort of Silicon Valley and a sort of hub of, of real innovation. Um, you know, lots of people have tried, um, you know, over the last 20 years, you know, the number of different Silicon, you know, this Silicon City, Silicon uh, Mountain, Silicon Forest, you know, there have been all of these different attempts and almost all of them get it wrong. I think they get it wrong because they don't, they don't but, understand. But Israel, Israel succeeded. Russia failed. Golkabo was a failure, but you have to say the tech area outside of Tel Aviv is a success. Sure, yeah, yeah, but is it a success to the level of Silicon Valley? No, but it is, there, are, there are some success stories. I'm not saying that all innovation comes from Silicon Valley because it certainly doesn't, and there are, there are other pockets of innovation. Israel is a, is a perfectly good example, but we've seen you know, pockets of, of innovation in Berlin, for example. We've in, seen- In Bangalore and, you know. And, and, yeah, certainly parts of India and, and certainly recently in China. You know, I think, you know, the, some of the, the discussions about Chinese internet firms uh, early on were that they were just copying, uh, you know, what was, what was successful in America uh, and just sort of making copycat applications. Um, but they've clearly, in, in a lot of areas, gone beyond. And, and some of what WeChat has done is actually really impressive if you look at it. And now what, what ByteDance has done, uh, with TikTok has has built up some really interesting stuff, and there are a few other companies there that have done some really interesting things. Um, the question is sort of where does it go, and what is kind of the best path for for innovation? Um, and there are different approaches, and I do wonder if long term the Chinese approach actually can compete. Um, but that might depend on what happens to Silicon Valley itself. Um, you know, if, if we continue to restrict immigration, if we continue to put in place regulations that effectively lock in place the largest companies, which is kind of what is happening now, um, certain privacy regulations effectively, you know, that were, that were put in place uh, ostensibly to, to limit Facebook and Google have really only served to lock in Facebook and Google because they're the only companies who can actually deal with the, the regulatory policies. Um, if that kind of thing continues, then I think Silicon Valley will have difficulty keeping up. If we can move back to uh, a more open internet that allows for real competition, allows for new companies and, and new ideas to flourish, I, I do think Silicon Valley can, can still do it because you have that, that sort of vast experimentation. You know, the reason why Silicon Valley is so successful and why the internet has been so important is because it allowed for 
you know, very, very easy, very, very low cost ability for a whole bunch of ideas to be thrown at the wall and to see what sticks. And lots of companies fail, but the successful ones are really, really successful. Um, you know, the, the Chinese approach has been more, you know, figure out who's going to win uh, and then give them enough resources to, to just to sort of dominate the market. Um, that works in certain, certain areas, but that approach has a lot more difficulty innovating in the long run. Um, you know, the, the innovation tends to come from the upstart companies that are doing something new and doing something unique and creative that takes the old guard by surprise. Um, and that works when you have that freedom to do, to do the innovation and to experiment. Um, and, you know, China is not exactly known for, for freedom to, to innovate. Um, you know, there have been some cases, but again, you know, you have companies that are sort of politically connected and then are declared the winners um, early on and nobody is effectively allowed to compete. Um, you know, that does create some interesting things and we've seen some interesting innovations out of China. Um, but I don't know if that, if that can hold long term. I, I, would, I would bet if, if the U.S. is allowed to, to continue to compete and innovate that, they can, they can, that Silicon Valley can hold its own. Well, Mike, firstly, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Secondly, I'm going to be reissuing an invitation to you because uh, obviously there's just so much to cover. <laughs> and we, we really appreciate your, your blog, your podcasts, and we're, we're big fans. So we're going to invite you back. And thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Sure. Thanks. This was fun. <laughs> No cat. Huh. To grab a shovel and think of the cat. Huh. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get.